on episode 18 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about the evolution of insurance, not the disruption of it, with Brian Falchuk from Insurance Evolution Partners. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the business world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific technologies that we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Spring is starting to fade. Summer is coming out, in particular in the South. Man, it was a hot week this week. Getting in the 90s and the 90% humidities in Texas was getting suffocating. So yours truly came up to the summer studio in Michigan for a few days to escape the heat. It's a whopping 61 here in Michigan. Uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying that. Brian, we have Brian with us uh, from Boston. He is wicked smart, uh, and he is at the... Studios slash office slash house slash promotion area slash lounge. Brian, how are you doing? Doing really well. Good to, good to see you. Good to have you on the show today. Uh, you got a nice setup there. You have a good mic. I can hear you deep. They say good. I like it with the good, good microphone. Doing podcasting makes you appreciate a good microphone. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you what, and also with us, of course, the most interesting man, and we and we have we have discovered today the number one most interesting man in insurance, Rob Galbraith. Rob, how you doing? I'm doing great, James. Yeah. Brian, great to be with you today. And uh, yeah, you're right. I think it might have even got to 101 here in San Antonio this week. <laughs> oh, man. In in May, it's in like May. it's crazy. It, it's a crazy hot May. Oh man. And, it, and it's like, you know, you love Texas in the winter, man. You just got to appreciate it. And this This was an easy winter to get through in Texas. I mean, it was fantastic. We had a great spring, two months of actual spring this year. And then summer's like, hey, you remember me? <laughs> yeah, I'm back and I'm bringing friends. And it's on. And Texas is kind of reopening now, Rob. Um, pretty much everyone doesn't give a crap about any of the restrictions. So they're doing whatever they want at this point. Uh, at least, at least that's the way it is in College Station, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say it's it's pretty similar here. So of course that means we're extra hunkered down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the people venture out. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, you guys go be the uh, guinea pigs there. We're gonna stay here at the house and uh, and chill out. Brian, Boston locked down yes, early. Uh, clamped down on construction too. I think they had all kinds of things. They they clamped down. How's it doing up there? Um, we only just started the lift on uh, the 18th and it's still like, I just went to the supermarket yesterday for my like weekly trip where my wife hoses me down when I get back or actually she won't cause she doesn't want to get near me afterward. But, um, it still feels pretty much the same. Oh. Like there was always groups of people who were ignoring things. Like you'd see teenagers, you know, kind of walking together in town that's been happening the whole time. So it, it doesn't feel different yet. And we got hit pretty hard. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we're as a community, we're, we're generally more more apt to follow the the rules on the whole. And, and of course, there's always people who won't do that. 
Yeah, Texans are like, bring it on, and you better bring some guns. <laughs> you got a bunch of militant, gun-toting libertarians in Texas. There's a reason policy is a little different. It's a it's a different world down here, but uh, yeah. I'll tell you what, not in Michigan. Michigan, whoo. But enough of that. We're going to talk about InsureTech today. Um, before I do, we're going to have a, just, a, just a little brief reminder out there that if you want more information on the show, uh, you want to check out the um, the podcast, you want to check out the show notes, you want to check, you can actually sign up for our email newsletter. We send you out every week and uh, it's at jbknowledge.com slash insuretechgeek. Uh, you can click the subscribe now button and we'll email you every week with the show notes and any articles we talk about and the guests, a link to listen to it. Uh, you can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get a podcast. Uh, you can uh, sign up and get the InsureTechGeek podcast. So just go there, jbknowledge.com slash insuretechgeek and you can check that out. Back to our esteemed guest, who we believe is the second most interesting man in insurance. Well, uh, when Rob said it's 101 in San Antonio, I thought he was about to say I'm the 101st most interesting man. <laughs> <laughs> we have to get obscure and specific. I, 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 yeah. We were talking before the show, I think you need to pick some random number like 87th. Because who's, I'll take it. who's yeah. going to contest that, right? Like. Yeah. It's it's kind of like um, one of my favorite favorite books business. I just finished reading three months ago, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. If you've never read it, oh, holy crap. It's a knowledge bomb on your brain about how to negotiate. One of the things he says is you have to get, get very specific with a number. Don't offer $500. Offer yeah. 492 they they will believe you actually put a lot more thought into four hundred ninety two dollars than five hundred dollars. So yeah. So let's well, so let's no say one's, no one's sniping me at eighty four. <laughs> yeah, Rob just has a laser pointed right at his head. But <laughs> it's targeted on my it, back. Yeah, yeah, it, so, it, yeah. I used to have a mouse pad actually that said "World's Best Boss" one hundred and thirty one thousand three hundred seventy third runner up. <laughs> no one's going to contest that. They're yeah, not. They're, that. they're not going to yeah. argue. Recount. One of the top fourteen hundred of bosses all time. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Hey, I got a I got a random delivery question, Brian. In Boston, will they deliver alcohol to your house? I don't know. You don't I'm, know? Well, I'm, so I'm going to lose half your audience or more. I'm vegan and I don't drink. Oh, Brian. So boom. Okay. I if it if it makes you feel better, I can't have a liver condition. So like his. Like, oh, okay, well I'll, I'll, I'll give it. you a pass on the drinking thing, but uh, vegan. I don't think you can get liquor delivered, but I don't know. So but the liquor stores are open. We got plenty of those. Oh, Hackies, it's Boston. Oh, I know. I mean, I yeah. so I, I lived in Boston. I start, I turned twenty one in Boston. Oh, I so was you know well. I was a I was a uh, consultant. Uh, you 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 as well did your time in the ranks. You were at McKinsey. Yep. I I was at Price Waterhouse Coopers, and they sent me there uh, for the summer of uh, two thousand. And I turned twenty one. The average temperature I think was fifty five degrees that summer. It was a nice cool summer in Boston. That's rare. That's very rare here. We had a great time. They took us to you know clam bakes on the beach in Maine, and I mean, uh, they I, I lived in the the Hyatt Regency there in Cambridge. It's right on the river. And wow. uh, it was fantastic. Stair step looking. Hotel. Yeah. The stair step looking hotel. Yeah. I was way up that thing and that's cool. Used to run around MIT and Harvard, Harvard. I would go to Harvard yard and run around. And uh, so it turns out my 11th great grandfather, also JB, I'm JB, James Benham, uh, John Benham came over in 1631 on the Marion John landed in Massachusetts. Oh. And uh, 
So I'm like an OG mass hole, right? Yeah. Like, like I'm like, the, you know, the original gangsta because my family lived there from 1631 till about 1680 or so. Uh, yeah, the eighties. Yeah, great the eighties, the sixteen yeah. It was great music. My 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 tenth great random random trivia. My tenth great grandmother was the last witch trial in Connecticut. They moved down to Connecticut, and she wow. got she was tried to quitted. Can nice. you believe that? I found I found cool. the trial. It was a legal proceeding. I found the trial notes. I'm not kidding. So wow. I have deep roots in your neck of the woods. I am not a Patriots fan, and I could give a fig that Tom Brady stuck a long, deep knife into your back uh, along with his boy Gronk and went down to Tampa Bay, I, although I do find it a bit amusing. I am a New Orleans Saints fan since I grew up in South Louisiana. Fair. But let's talk about you. You are from Boston, this generation. I count, I, count, I count back. How far back you go? Like 1800s? No, my family's not. So my dad's not from the U.S. He's South American. And nice. uh, my mom's family, uh, she was born in New York. Oh, you're like first generation so, Bostonian. You're young. Yeah, yeah, you're young yeah. blood. Yeah, it's okay. Even my siblings, my, my oldest sister was born in Virginia and my brother was, well, he was born here. But yeah, huh? like yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like my next sister up for me are, are the only like real born and, and raised here. Nice. Well, my, my grandmother, so different side than the, the longstanding Boston family, Nicaraguan. So where's okay. where's where's your dad from? He's from Venezuela. Oh, Venezolano. And uh, I lived in Mexico fifteen and sixteen when I was in, when, I, when I was fifteen and sixteen. So ninety five, ninety six. Yeah. And um, we've been operating in Argentina, JB Knowledge, since two thousand two. We opened our office there, so we've got we've got almost two hundred people down there in Argentina. Venezuela is an area that we avoid pretty actively. Yeah, it's the right call, which is uh, it's really sad. But, yeah, it's super, um, super duper sad. Like, yeah. you know, as crazy as the Colombians used to go to Venezuela to escape the FARC and all the other it's crap in Colombia. It's completely the opposite. And now, now. it's the opposite. Yeah. Now they're going to yeah. Colombia. Colombia is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Now they're super capitalist and they kicked, yeah. well, they settled. They didn't kick the FARC out. They settled the, the dispute. They settled. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, same, thing, same thing with, with the, I mean, the drug trade and everything. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, yeah, they, they didn't, wild. They didn't, nobody won. Everybody just agreed yeah. to go back to the way it was. They're like, oh, you go back to living in the jungle. We'll still hear the city right. and you do your thing. We'll do our thing and let's stop killing Coexistence. Each other. Yeah, yeah. Coexistence. It's fat. Latin America, South America fascinates me. You know, I've spent a lot of time. I've been down to Argentina like 25 times. I've been there a lot and uh, I'm eh, like 89% fluent Spanish and uh, have a great time going down there. But it's, it's like the countries in Latin America are just perpetually trying to get over their own baggage and just cannot, you know. Hmm. Like when I was in Mexico, the they, they were just rolling off a single party. The the pre, the pan were coming into power, and they they just can't quite figure out how to govern themselves. Mm. They have such a hard time, and they'll have periods of greatness, and then they slip back into, and into whatever it is that they slip into. Usually populism, and yeah. uh, that's challenging. So that that's that's a that's neat. So you you grew up uh, in in the Northeast, and tell me like what did you envision going into, and then how did you end up in insurance? Because like I don't yeah. know I don't know many eighteen year olds I go and talk to them are like you should have a career in insurance. And they're like yeah. yeah that sounds great. Well that's why Gamma Sigma Iota int- um, interest is, is probably the wrong word, but like um, kind of amazes me as much as it does is like these are these are kids. And yep. they're kids when they make this decision who are like, you know what, I this is the path I want to go down. And having to, I mean, that's where Rob and I met was at their um their insurance nerds day, the first one in Chicago back in 2018. And uh those kids are serious about it and they're excited. And that's that's great to see. Like having been in the industry for a while, 
I appreciate and love that, but I like I couldn't have done that. I remember, so I started Liberty Mutual by accident, as like what ninety percent of us in the industry are sort of like, well, I got into insurance by accident, so that's me. Um, I wanted to do management consulting. Uh, I I graduated in two thousand, which was when the dot com bubble burst killed most job offers. I had an offer from Liberty Mutual, I, so I was actually a junior that year. I got an offer to join Liberty's internal strategy consulting team as a as part of their internship. So I took that, and then the bubble burst. All these job offers fell apart, and I found out I was graduating a year early. So it's like huh. you're going to be out, and I was like, oh well, I've got this insurance thing, and they offered me full time. So it kind of it was the work I wanted to be doing. I just didn't see it as being in the insurance industry. But once I got in there, I was like, this is fantastic. It's actually really interesting. And for me, I'm a problem solver. I like finding opportunities or things that are broken and grabbing the better path. And so like, look, there's a lot of that in insurance and Liberty, to be fair, was not the Liberty that the industry knows today. I joined at 12.8 billion, not like 38 billion or you know, roughly that today. Um, wildly different company. All due respect to everything we were back then, we were really like fairly a mediocre player. Liberty is a superstar today. Like they are a force to be reckoned with. And the seeds of the modern day Liberty Mutual were very much being sowed then. So it was a different, it was a different setting and there was a lot of opportunity to jump in, fix things, make things better, um, you know, find ways to, uh, to improve and see it. So for me, it was really exciting. And I like whoever expects that with all the jokes about working in insurance, you know, people make fun of it. Like my joke when I was in my early twenties working in an insurance company is like, you know, I go up to a girl at a bar. I'm like, Hey, I'm Brian. I work at an insurance company. Like, okay, thanks for the free drink. Bye-bye. Cause it's, you know, it's like, that's not cool, but I loved it. And, um, I love the consulting work, but I love the industry too. And I got, I got totally hooked and I have no idea what you asked me about now, actually. No, 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 no. I asked How'd what I, get well, I asked it, what right? you, then you answered. I asked what, did, yeah. what did you, what did you intend to go into and what'd you get into? And, and the reality is when, I think when, and I was in business school, so I got a degree in accounting, got a master's in, uh, science and business. So an MIS and did, uh, Six months of internships with PricewaterhouseCoopers enough enough yeah. to, enough to know that I, I did an undergrad internship then during grad school did another one and I thought that was going to be my route and I was like I, I can't do this you know like everyone everybody I worked with traveled a hundred percent of the time they left home on Sunday night they got yep. home th- Thursday night or Friday morning and they were talking about their kids not knowing them and I was like dude I can't do that like I I, 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 I was twenty one I hadn't even met my wife yet I didn't have kids I didn't I mean. I didn't have kids in my late twenties. Like that wasn't even on my radar, but I knew that wasn't a lifestyle I could do. And um, insurance really wasn't on my radar. I knew I needed. I knew I knew I needed to buy insurance. But you know, I got introduced to insurance by um, a really neat group in, in Bryan College Station that was owned by a, our, our local multi-billionaire. <laughs> Has a has a G six fifty at the College Station Airport, um, and he he bought a company. He bought a bunch of companies in the mid two thousands, but he bought an insurance company. And then they, they asked me to do work, and that's how I fell into insurance was I started writing software for this wholly owned subsidiary of a guy I knew and just was like captivated by the data challenges, you know, yeah. the technology challenges and, and the fact that without insurance so much, you know, there's two things that like I love. There's a lot of, I love about fintech in general. Like when you look at banking and insurance because you kind of have to look at them together uh, in a lot of ways. Without banks, you don't have liquidity, and I've seen that in Argentina, right? The they don't have liquidity in Argentina. They don't have liquidity. They they yeah. a mortgage in Argentina is twenty two to thirty yeah. percent. Right? They don't have liquidity, 
And so if you don't have an effective banking industry, you don't have liquidity, which means businesses that can't get capital to grow and people don't get capital to get their projects done. And without really good insurance companies, people carry too much risk and bad things wipe them out before they can really get going. Right? And without an insurance company backing you, don't, you, you tend to not take as much risk too. You know, If I didn't have cyber liability, it would, it would be a completely different world for me. You, you, know, you know what I mean, Brian? And I think you have to be a little older and you have to go and work in business a little bit till you, till you understand that's hard to sell that to a 19-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. It's very true. And, and your point on travel, good for you for knowing that that wasn't of interest. Being on the recruiting side for a college kid, when you think about travel, it's like it's vacation, you know? And so it's like, oh, that sounds cool. Let me tell you something. Like having lived out of the Sharonville, Ohio, Sheridan for eight months where like you don't have to bring your bags home. They'll just like, oh, you can leave your sneakers and whatever else here. And, you know, then you can just like walk on, walk off the plane. Um, it's not, it's like, I actually, I really liked that area and everything, but it's not, it's not vacation. Um, most not of the easy. travel, not, most of the travel we did was to like Delaware. I mean, it was like, I mean, it wasn't like not, it was It's not to Puerto Vallarta. No, like we're not, like you're going, not going to Disney. I'm not going to Bangkok to like right. go and explore new Thai food or something like yeah. Like yeah. we were going to, I mean, like months on end near the Dallas Fort Worth airport in, in like this obscure yep. corporate business park in Arlington, Texas. Right. Like that, that yeah. is, it's not glamorous travel. Yeah. Right. And you're having turkey sandwiches in whatever your client's cafeteria is. And yeah, I had to eat mustard packets. They, they had a, they had a cafeteria and I'm not going to see who the client was, but they had a corporate cafeteria run by uh Aramark. And it was like, oh, it was, it was like, it was worse than my school cafeteria food, you know? And yeah. I'm like, like, this is terrible. Like, this is, this is every day for 20 years. My kids don't know me. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> I can't do, I can't do this. So, what? so, so what you, you had a, a, an interesting progression through insurance companies. Uh, yeah. Just walk me through like, you had like kind of like three major stops that I saw. I did, um, yeah. What what what, so, what what were the stops and what'd you learn? Yeah. Um, so the Liberty experience, like while I was consulting, it wasn't a heavy travel one because most of the people were in Boston or surrounding area. So yeah, I traveled, but not a ton. Um, so that, that wasn't too bad. I, I did four years there and I went to Dartmouth to get my master's at, at Tech. And I interned and went full-time with McKinsey. So then I was doing the road war. And I like had one local client every now and then, but generally... Yeah, I was on the road and I was a newlywed. So, you know, I lived that life serving carriers that were like Liberty because, you know, McKinsey's not cheap. And it's kind of only, the, you know, the the mega carriers who at that time were able to afford McKinsey or would afford McKinsey. So, like, I was still seeing the same world and, like, it's fine. But it was the same old PNC world that I, you know, I had known. And uh, then I got a call from a headhunter for this little British company I'd never heard of, the specialist who was just building out their U.S. business and... Um, needed someone to kind of like turbocharge it and figure out like straighten out the operations and their small business team and build out distribution and all these things. I was like, oh, that's really cool sounding. I've never heard of you guys. Not really interested. I was like, but I should probably do the interviews anyway because you never know. And like, you know, maybe it's good training for when like, <laughs> you know, some other thing comes along that I am interested in because I wasn't, I wasn't ready to leave McKinsey. But going through the interview, like my whole fix it bug really got turned up because I was listening to all this opportunity. And this company is Beasley. 
brand new in the US. <laughs> and after, like, I remember I flew down to Plus was in DC to do the interview with like the CEO and a couple other folks. And, you know, I was kind of blase about it going in. And I remember I came out of the interview, go to the airport and I call my wife. I'm like, I'm so screwed. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, I have to go work for these people, but I wasn't that interested you know, until the interview. And so like, they probably know that. And I'm, you know, I'm never going to get like, I had an offer by the time I landed in Boston, because I don't think I would have slept that night otherwise. So I spent six and a half years there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Long story short, long story. Short, I, I yeah. spent over half a decade at this company. I yeah. didn't know who they were. It was, and it was, it was all, I mean, this is before cyber existed. And if anybody knows Beasley today, they probably know them for Beasley breach response and their, their cyber offering that really defined like cyber back then was just an indemnity layer. And now it's this whole breach thing. It's all the services. And Beasley was the first to do that. And when they created it, it was brilliant. And nobody bought it for a year and a half. It's like a total dog because cyber was still super new. Um, And now it's everyone has the same offering, more or less, you know, same slate of vendors, but it's a totally different space than what we started with. And the minimum premiums, the early cyber policies is like 12.5 you can get cyber coverage for like 50 bucks today, like $12,500 for a small yeah. business. And it had none of the breach stuff in it. I remember, so I mean, times. Brian, I've been around this business 19 years and and the first half I didn't have cyber. I couldn't afford it. Like it was, yeah. it was crazy. There weren't a lot of markets. It was hard to get. I mean, it was, yeah. uh, by the way, it wasn't a requirement by my clients back yeah. then. Like it was, no. you know, we had general liability and work home with all the other stuff, right? But yeah. now it's literally the most important coverage that we have. For sure. And it's, and you know, for a tech company, it's bundled in with our errors and emission coverage, right? So yeah. they, they bring it together. But uh, Beasley uh, is a, a great company. Yeah. And, and I had a really cool experience there. Built out distribution in the US. Um, I spent two years in, in the small business underwriting team. And then um, they asked me to take over US operations and kind of sort things out. Like our core system really was Excel and Outlook. Like, yes, we had a system, but we were working on replacing it. But, um, you know, a lot of duct tape, a lot of hamsters and hamster wheels, and a lot of really hardworking people just trying to, to make everything look good on the outside while we were like, you know, it was a really fast growing startup in the US and, and that's hard to handle. So um, I spent about four years running US underwriting and claims operations. And um, I left in 2014. Like I joined Beasley under Andrew Beasley. I was like the number 538th employee. <sighs> Globally, I left under Andrew Horton, who I have a ton of respect for, but very different company when I left than when I joined. He had a CFO running it versus the founders' names on the door, like an yeah. underwriter through and through, you know, grew up at Lloyd's. Amazing company. They've done fantastically well. I was a shareholder for a long time after I left. A lot of respect for them, but it's just different. And it's not what I um, was really excited about when I joined. So, you know, I, I wanted to go and, um, Briefly spent some time in the MedMal space, which is a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't say. But, uh, n- not one worth getting into, but that's a, that's a really tough, really tough space. I left to help a friend who was starting this safety technology company called Guard Hat and a uh, really strong workers comp play in that and to train for a marathon and have some fun because I'd kind of been like burning myself really hard for 13 years straight. And it was just great to take a few months and breathe. And in that period, Hiscox needed a new head of US claims. And um, I'm kind of unique. Like, I, I've, you know, I've, I've worked across a lot of functions, um, seen a lot of carriers, and there's not a ton of us in specialty lines. 
Um, and certainly not a ton of us in specialty lines with a consulting kind of background. And that's what they wanted. They didn't want amazing claims attorney. They had those. They wanted someone who's more thinking about the strategy of it and the operations and that sort of thing. So how can you get someone who's going to understand? I had rebuilt a major claims organization when I was at McKinsey and implemented it. So I you know, lived through massive claims change and designing it all the way through putting it in place. So to get all that together was pretty rare. So I was a really good candidate. The problem is the job was in Atlanta and I live in Boston. And my wife has a chronic illness and whole support network here. So we couldn't just like pick up and move. So, uh, you know, I had made her a promise that I was not going to continue to consult long term. Like that was a two year thing right when we got married and that was it. And then here I go taking like arguably the job of a lifetime. Um, the one my whole career was like next to being CEO, which I actually wasn't interested in at the time. Like this is what I wanted to do. So guess what? I'm getting on a plane every single Monday morning. And I'm not coming back Thursday night, come back Friday night. Jeez. So it was worse than when I was at McKinsey in some respects. But one of the hardest things about consulting is like Sunday night, you don't always know what plane you're getting on Monday morning. I always knew like it's that same Southwest or Delta flight every Monday morning. Like I had my own apartment in Atlanta, which when I ended up leaving um, Hiscox, I told my son, like when we told him the news, He's like, where are we going to stay when we go to Six Flags in Atlanta? I'm like, well, we can stay in a hotel like normal people. Like, you <laughs> have to work in another state and have an apartment there for you to go to Six Flags. They have places to stay. Uh, but so, look, I, I did that for three years and I wasn't always in Atlanta. And that's part of why we didn't move to because I was like there six weeks straight that I wouldn't set foot in the Atlanta office because I was at other offices or at different things across the country. So obviously it's a uh, a big job, amazing job, a lot of travel in it as well. But I completely missed 30% of my son's life. He was 10 when I left and I, you know, he was seven when I started. So it was like, it really hit me. It was like the last year talking about his best friend. And I'm like, it was the same name as a friend of his in preschool. I'm like, wait, you're friends with him again? It's like, no, this is someone different. I'm like, I don't even know my kid's best friend's name. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, Um, yeah. So that, you know, same stories I heard when I was with my, my consultant buddies. So, yeah. so you you had some really great experiences through insurance that led you to this point. Rob, I know um, that uh, you, you've got some good history with Brian. I'd love for you to, to keep this uh, keep this going. Thanks for walking us through um, your amazing career. And I, I do think it's an amazing uh, career, Brian. You've got just so much credibility on the insurance side from everything you've done. But more recently, you've been working with InsurTech. So you mentioned Card Hat. I know Hi Marley and others. Like, yeah. That's where I mean, we may be seeing a little bit more and more where um, like a lot of people that kind of started in the intro tech space kind of in the early 2010s, right, came from outside the industry, saw those problems that you mentioned uh, when you yeah. started at Liberty Mutual. But more recently, I am seeing more what I would call insiders who are kind of making the leap from the traditional insurance world to insure tech. So yeah, what is what has been that 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 experience or that transition as you work with some of these startups and just yeah how has it changed yeah i th- i think that's a really astute point rob and i think you're absolutely right and that to me is one of the key divides between some of the different insurtech players maybe offering the same kind of solution but one company versus another and that's that's hubris people who come from the outside to solve a problem they may have a great solution some of them go a little bit further and sort of like laughing at, at the insurance industry or being like, oh, you know, you, you people can't figure this out. We have to come in. We're going to blow everything up and make it better. It's like, that's great. Just maybe. And, and this is one of the things I loved about your book is like very honest look at what's going on in the industry and have some respect for that because those are real problems. It's not just a bunch of stupid people who can't get out of their own way. There are a lot of complexities. And that, so I was one of the first customers at High Marley. Um, I think technically 
I went live before West Bend Insurance, but my PR team couldn't turn the press release around fast enough. So West Bend gets to claim that they were the first. And actually, I think Merchants ends up claiming second. But um, so I'm, and it's not that I'm bitter about that, but clearly I'm bitter about that. But I, you know, I got on board with this really early. And I will say at first, I was like, like it's a texting solution. I was like, yeah, it's kind of pointless. I don't, I don't like to text. I don't see the point. And my team looked at me like the biggest idiot they've ever met. So we tried it. I'm like, okay, I don't know everything. Let's try it. And in, in doing so, that's when I woke up that like, I knew I didn't know everything, but what I will never know is what our customers really think and feel until we try to connect with them. And in doing that, you know, we, we saw a ton and we saw it within hours of the pilot going live. And I was blown away by it and just got really close to the team at High Marley, started advising them. And you know, as I was getting more and more uncomfortable with the amount of time I was away from home, the team at High Marley was raising their Series A and they were like, hey, you know, love you to join on. So that time they're in Boston. So the timing worked out really nicely. Um, so I left... Hiscox, honestly, it was like you wouldn't think someone uh, leaving an insurance company would be emotional. Like we were in tears. Like I, I started crying, like choking up crying when I was telling my team, and a bunch of them did too. And then I had to pick which ones to have dinner with that night because like, can we have dinner tonight? Um, because I was flying to Chicago the next day for meetings. So it was like actually where I ended up meeting Rob. I felt like I was losing my family. Like, I love that team so much. They're incredible people, and I'm so thankful to get to work to, with them. Yeah, I love my family too, and so it's like I gotta stay close at home. So I joined High Marley. The, the founders had an insurance story, so none of them worked at a carrier, but they all served carriers on the consulting side, and they had another startup that Aon had purchased, stayed at Aon serving carriers. So like they were insurance um, ecosystem people, but no one from a carrier, and that's something I think is incredibly important for any insure tech is. You need to really get what you're, forget InsureTech, any tech provider to an industry, but construction is another great one. If you don't understand what it's like to actually live in that space, the chance that you're going to fully resonate with your customers, that your solution is actually going to solve the problems you intend to solve without creating other ones and have the empathy for what their life looks like, I think is basically nil, unless it's just by chance. You know, I was talking to one of the risk engineers at XXL and she's like, that's what she did. She was a risk engineer in construction before going into the insurance side. She's like, I know exactly like I know what what the people I'm talking to, what their life is like, because I was them or and, you know, so when I went to High Marley, you know, I'm calling on other CCOs. It's like, hey, we were together last month, at the chief claims officer summit. Um, let me tell you about this thing. And it's like, this is what it did for my team. So my, my ability to connect with what they were facing is very different than someone whose only insurance experience is selling to insurance companies or trying to disrupt it. So I think that that's, that's a difference. And I think um, more and more, some of the, the insure tech providers, if they're not founded by insurance folks, they've recognized that and they're, they're getting more of that firsthand experience in-house because that, that just changes your ability uh, to build the right solution, but also to know how to talk about it with your customer base. And you can't succeed if you're not doing that. Yeah, having walk to walk and, and talk to talk is so important. So yeah, yeah you're, you're spot on, Brian. The problem with the role there, though, was I was running sales, which means I was on the road all the time. So, uh, yeah. and, it, and it was back to the uncertainty. You know, instead of like every Monday, it's the same, the same, uh, you know, same like TSA agents and, and all that, like everything's different. So you know, you, I spent a year all over the country, had really cool conversations with a lot of leaders at many different carriers, which is awesome. And a lot of them, like there's a ton of insurance companies out there, by the way, 
um, you know, that like sub billion dollar range, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And I got to see these companies I would never have known otherwise. And, um, you know, a lot of them are really amazing companies. And I kept hearing the same thing, this sense of feeling stuck, a little bit of hopelessness, um, a sense of being behind and not being able to do anything about it. And so my job was not really to sell high Marley. My job was to have them see that actually like there is a way forward for you, even if you feel you've got, you know, regulation standing in your way or can't get the budget or, you know, you've got IT debt or culture or your people don't want to be changed or trained or any of it. Like all of those things are very real and you can still take on new solutions. And a new solution in the tech side does not have to be an eight year endeavor for hundreds of millions of dollars and an SI coming. Like it's, they're thinking about the last core system replacement project they did, which is terrible. They're all terrible. None of them delivers the scope that you wanted. They're necessary, but there is not a single story out there of a core system replacement. People are like, oh, it's great. Under budget, ahead of time. And we that's got right. yeah, all no, the scope no. we wanted and more. They're all painful. And so that's what they think of when they think like tech. And we have to get past that. So after a year of having those conversations, I really wanted to travel a little bit less, but also start to talk to the industry about our ability to get past these sort of headwinds or handcuffs or constraints or walls that we face and actually be able to move forward. And that's, that's really what I've been working on since the first of the year. Yeah. That's awesome, Brian. That's great, James. Brian. Yeah. Let's talk about the book. Yes. And that's what the story is. Like that's, that's what that message is all about. Yeah. Let's talk about the book because uh, you're, you're saying it and we, we, we mentioned it at the beginning of the show. Uh, yeah. During the introduction, this is really about the evolution of insurance, not the disruption of it. Right. So, walk me through what that means to you, and let's talk. Yeah. T- tell me why book, why another book? Right. There's lots yeah. of books about insurance. There's even other fantastic books about the end of insurance as we know it. There's great books out there. Why another book? And what do yes. you mean? What do you mean by evolution, not disruption? Yeah. So this book that's coming out in June is The Future of Insurance from Disruption to Evolution. And it really is about that conversation I kept having over and over again. And I mean, Rob, you, your, your book title is very ominous, but you're not really predicting the end of insurance. You're talking about dramatic changes to it. And, and actually, I think the two go hand in hand really nicely is like you are setting up the building blocks for this shift. And that's, that's what my book is about is the conversation I kept having is, you know, we're, we're all constrained. We can't do anything. We're too far behind. And it was a very like depressing, hopeless conversation. And, and then it was layered on with, and then you got these startups who don't have any of that. And they're doing all these cool things. We can't do that. And that's the disruption piece. So when I first joined the industry, there was a big moment of disruption coming through this thing called the internets. I think it's plural. The internet was becoming a big deal and the letter E was being appended to everything. And it was all about exchanges, maybe spelt with a letter X. And like GRX was one of them that's like, okay, brokers are going to be gone. You're going to do your large national accounts through like GRX. I can talk about them because they don't exist anymore. Spoiler alert, right? It didn't happen. But a lot of things did happen, and that was a facilitation of a different interaction. But carriers weren't being threatened. And while brokers and agents were being predicted to be gone, they weren't. And they're, they shouldn't be, and they're not going to be. But things have changed. Today, the disruption's a little bit different. So yes, there's lots of enabling tech, and that's awesome. You know, Hi Marley, lots of others. Um, you know, another company I work with, Pinpoint, like lots of really cool enablers to help carriers. 
But there's another thing that modern tech has facilitated, and it's some of the stuff we were talking about before, is the startup of carriers. So it's much easier today to start a carrier up than it was before. And part of that is different capital structures and prevalence of MGA models and all that. But a lot of it is the tech because you don't have to have 80 years of actuarial analysis behind you. You can build a predictive analytics model that will learn every day. As long as you can file rates that work with that, you can start up a carrier and ostensibly be profitable. But that hasn't happened for the startup. Theoretically speaking. Yeah. Um, on paper, that was not the case in 2000. Yeah, there were startups like insurance was coming of age then. And, you know, there, there were start. It's not that nothing happened, but today is different. There is more of a direct threat. And some of them, their marketing is directly made as a threat. Like one of them, a drink named one, starts every ad with insurance companies suck. And that's not, that doesn't inspire hope for those insurance companies. So you've got this sense of constraint. And you've got this new kind of disruptive threat that's not just about the way we work. It's disruptive threats to you as a company. That's different from what we saw 20 years ago. And that's the context that I wanted to speak to because, yes, those things are real. We have constraints and we have these new startups that are more direct disruptive threats to us. But that doesn't mean the game is over. That doesn't mean we leave. That doesn't mean we we fail. And it doesn't mean we're all going to be replaced by them. Some of them will survive, some of them won't. Some of us will survive, some of them, some of us won't. And it's not necessarily because of the other one. Like lemonade is not going to put State Farm out of business. And whether either one of them survives probably has nothing to do with the other one, in all honesty. There could be lots of other reasons for it. Maybe one acquires the other, but like it's it's not that one-to-one direct threat. And that's the conversation I want to get to get into theoretically, but then I wanted to make it more tangible. And so my hope was, let me find some carriers who are willing to talk about things they've done that are innovative, despite all of those barriers. And despite the sense that we can't do anything, or we're too far behind, or, you know, all that kind of hopeless mentality, for a couple reasons. One is like, well, let that be inspirational. So I've written two other books, but they're self-help books. So I like to inspire people with my writing. This is also a self-help book. The person is just an insurance carrier this time. But like, let me inspire you. But also, what are the tangible lessons we can take from this? And it's not about the specific tech. So like one of the carriers I got to work with was Ohio Mutual when I was at Hyde Marley. So Ohio Mutual's in there talking about their journey through texting that ended up at Hyde Marley. It's not to say, although I'd love this to be the answer, it's not to say if you want to text with your customers, you have to use Hyde Marley, but you probably should, just saying. But it's more like, it doesn't even need to be about texting. It's like, well, think about the issues they were facing. Why did they need to solve something? Think about the constraints they face. Does any of that resonate with you? Now, here's how they structured their ability to find a solution and put it in place and learn and grow. Is there a message in that that resonates with you, even if we're talking about predictive analytics or something totally different from texting? Like if CNA is in there and their work with shift technology on the fraud side, if you're trying to implement a you know AI and predictive fraud tool with machine learning in it, yeah, you could do exactly what CNA did. And that's not a bad idea. I think really highly of shift. And I love the way that it worked out for CNA. But that's not why the case is there. If you do that, cool. What can you learn instead from how CNA did it, how they moved quickly, what they learned in it, where they misstepped. And they're like, listen, you know, this didn't go the way we thought it would, or we didn't really see this ahead of time. CSAA is another one. And they were pretty honest. They're like, it took us a long time to go live. We didn't set this stuff up. And it was hard for us. Like we kind of bungled through it to figure it out. But here's why that actually was beneficial in the long run. Because we learned this stuff. We knew what we needed to fix rather than presuming it up front. And we learn and grow. So seven different carriers in there. Mention a few. You've also got employers. 
AXA XL with their construction business. Um, I always end up forgetting some state compensation insurance fund of California. And um, there's a little carrier in Texas called USAA. Um, so there, I don't know if you guys are familiar never, with them. So never, heard there as well. never heard of them. Never heard of them. Never heard of them, Brian. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anybody that used to work there either. So. No. So I think they're a bank. Um, so USAA <laughs> is in there too. And um, they were all really honest and open. So this isn't like I just scoured press releases and you know kind of summed them up. It's not a study of studies. These are firsthand interviews. Like I talked to the people that did this work. I talked to, in some cases it was internal and in others it was external. Like I talked, I went to Schiff's Boston offices and met with their whole team. You know, I've obviously like, I didn't have to talk to anyone at High Marley, although I do, but I didn't have to. It's been like uh, weather analytics is now called Athenium. That's, that's part of the XXL story. So I've connected with their team and I knew them from um, like we presented at NAMIC together last year. So I'd already like was completely blown away by their stuff and their presentation. The guy presenting was a weatherman on TV. So like he was very good on stage. But I, I got into it with all the players involved and really built firsthand, yes, they're case studies, but they're stories. They're like real human stories of what this team and this carrier went through and what they had to overcome so that you can take away some some core lessons in the end and maybe inspire a bit of change on your end. Let's talk about hubris for a second. Yeah. Because the Silicon Valley uh, seems to be plagued with it many times, I think it's it's helpful to have. Um, God, are we already are we turning into the salty dogs? Like, <laughs> I feel I feel like I feel like I'm turning into that. You know, I mean, you. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to be 41 this year. Uh, I went through dot com boom and bust. My favorite sci fi series of all time is Star Trek. My second favorite is Battlestar Galactica and at the end of BSG the last episode the last this has all happened before it'll all happen again and so say we all and it's like yeah so say we all <laughs> not that I'm a tech geek but a, if I was there you such go. a good show I had to do it bringing the geek to the insure tech the geek, geek podcast hey I put it in the name of the podcast for a reason Roberto just fracking settle down yeah just fracking settle down I mean what a great show and it's a great good show. reminder that this has all happened before it'll all happen again and to to think otherwise is hubris yeah oh but you know what james like so i don't know if you go to itc i yeah. know rob was there that's you know right around when his book was coming out um i sat down in this break area because i was on my feet nonstop on the like i don't even know what they call where all the companies are i can't think of the name but like the show floor where yeah. you know everyone's set up with their booths it's exhausting I got a break. Like I covered every shift. My staff was, was on and off. Um, but I was like, guys, I need like 15 minutes. I went and sat on these couches outside, you know, it's like 5,000 degrees. And this guy sits down next to me and he's just shaking his head and, and like laughing to himself. So I'm like, okay, I'll take the bait. I'm like, Oh, what's up? <laughs> and he's, he just starts, I'm not going to swear, but he starts going off. He's like these, you know, blank idiots, all these carriers, <laughs> they just don't get it. They're all going to be gone soon enough. And I'm just like, in my head, I'm like, insure tech, carrier, startup, CEO. I was like, oh, what do you do? He's like, I started a carrier. And uh, he said, they don't get it. Like, we're going to eat their lunch. And I was like, oh, very, yeah, tell me more. And all I can think is like, if I'm here next year, I bet you won't be. Because you're missing the point. Yeah, well, think about Lloyd's, right? Pioneered modern insurance, 1700s. Yeah. They, how many waves of disruption has Lloyd's survived? And 300 years. Yeah. And it almost didn't I mean, survive some of them. 
but but it did. They did. And my, yeah, my my point is that they've continued to evolve and adapt. And there is a there is something to be said for understanding how insurance works. Um, yeah. For enduring catastrophic loss, for enduring yes. massive downturns when your investment income goes to zero, for enduring horrific circumstances like the entire world's economy putting a button on the pause button for two months. Like, that's insane. Yeah. And what the, the problem I have, the problem, there's, there's so many good things that come from readily available capital. Um, there's so many good things. So yeah. I want to preface this by saying that readily available capital enables great ideas to take flight. It really does. It, yeah. ena- it enables hardworking, good, honest people to go and get things done and build companies that never would have been built because a bank would have never lent them money. Their parents weren't rich and couldn't give them a loan, and they had a ton of college debt because they had to work their way through college. Like, Let's yeah. be honest. Readily available capital is one of the chief things that makes America economically great because when you go to other countries, and I have spent the last three decades of my life because my parents took me all over the world, and then I went all over the world just on my own with business. I've I've seen – I've been to China. I've been to Western China. I've been to South America. I've been all over the world, man. And it is one of the big things that separates us is that if you're an entrepreneur and you want to get started, you can – you can you can get the capital to get going. However, it creates that exact attitude when it's so readily available. And they never have to prove themselves on how they can actually generate a profit. They never have to get their loss ratios in check. They never have to deal with their um with their expenses. They and 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 Rob, you what you went into it in your book and you really started digging into, you know, here's the stack, but we, we remember, you know, then you know, I think I think you were talking about auto losses, and then it was only you know half of it, only half, fifty three percent, fifty percent went to auto claims, and you know, you just keep shrinking the pie. But the reality is, there's a lot that goes into this, and there's a lot of effort and work that goes into this. And the most difficult thing to do in business, in my opinion, is to generate a profit. That is the most difficult thing to do, and to do it without debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think that's that's something that is. Certainly, the chickens are coming home to roost right now. On and you're watching, and th- this is this is what concerns me, right? You're watching SoftBank implode right now in front of our eyes. They have been heavily involved in fintech, <laughs> and a significant material percentage of Silicon Valley operates on the assumption that some other poor sucker is going to have to buy the bag on the merry-go-round before it stops, right? Like their their goal is to build, 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 flip before we have to make profitable. Now they're going, oh, crap, there's no one to flip to. The public markets are crap. The public markets don't want massive money-losing companies like Uber or Lyft or Peloton or anybody else. They, they want you to generate a profit. And now there's no one else that that's willing to buy it. Uh, and so you're seeing like mass layoffs in venture-funded tech companies right now. Yeah. right? And so this is what worries me, Brian, is the attitude that you saw at InsureTech Connect from that one guy you sat next to. And hubris preventing us from actualizing some of the really, really great ideas that really could radicalize, radically change insurance. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with you about what capital creates, especially in this country and the dangers of it. This has happened before and it will happen again. So, you know, my story back about getting to Liberty Mutual, the dot com bubble burst is the same damn thing. Same thing. 
Been here how before, many, bud. And I, I, I mentioned this in, in my book. It's like how many of the major internet service services you use today existed in 99? And how many of them that you use then exist today? Do you know what I searched for on the web? Because Google hadn't been invented yet. I used Alta Vista. And that was like, that was I, Alta was Vista. Awesome. awesome. That was a great service. Best. I used the and Yahoo then, web directory, brother. Do you remember Mozilla? Of course I do. Because I surfed everything. I used Netscape. <laughs> Which was powered by Mozilla. Mozilla didn't exist okay. technically yet, but yeah. like the Bones did, but it wasn't a company. There was no Mozilla.org yet. Yeah. Yeah. Netscape and when Navigator came out, and then you get email in it and, you know, and you can message your friends on AIM. Eudora. You search, yeah. You do, oh, Eudora, the, the, um, <laughs> do, 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 the little sound <laughs> when the email came in. That was my college experience, the AIM uh, sound and the Eudora uh-huh. sound. Uh huh. And and then Napster was a little like I was getting out of school when Napster was becoming Same. a thing, but none of these words exist anymore. Now there's other weird words that are misspelled today, but that's kind of the point. So you look at um, I caught up with Ben Walters, the CEO of Hiscox Retail. He was my CEO when I worked at Hiscox. He was running the U.S. business at the time, and we were talking about valuations and and you know the insure tech scene. And I'm not gonna say which company, but one of the insure tech carriers had just done another raise. Or they were talking about it and they were talking about valuation and it was higher than Hiscox's. Now, Hiscox hit a rough patch with, with some of the business interruption, bad press they got, and obviously what's going on um, globally and uh, some DNO claims that were playing out. But this is before any of that. There is no basis for that extreme money losing startup whose only profit is just because they keep getting poured in more of this free flowing capital. Their insurance business is fundamentally broken and all running on hubris. Why is that worth more? I get Tesla's worth more than everyone but Toyota. I don't agree with that, but I kind of get it. I kind of yeah. get that. Until you look at Audi's new kinda. line of e-tron and you see Audi has... Yeah, but the range, they're, they're gorgeous cars. The range isn't there yet. They've yeah. got it. They still have a ways to go. And you look at like Sandy Monroe, who tears cars down, who's, who's brilliant. He do, he, he's pretty negative on Tesla up front, and then he tears them down, and he's so in awe of what they've done with the computing power and the wiring. That's yeah. where he's like, no one can touch them. And it's not the design. It's not Elon Musk as a marketer. Like there are reasons why you can sort of understand it. He has world domination issues. And, you know, that's why I don't know that the value is right or not, but I can understand it. You can't explain a lot of the valuation in insure tech today, just like in 99. And I forget the exact term for it, but there was like the the tulip bubble or something. We studied this. Like in my tulip mania. Yeah, yeah, tulip mania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this keeps happening. So we do have. Um, overinvestment, overexcitement, and then a crash, and then things right. And like the the core in, um, internet space is actually pretty rational from an investment standpoint. It's the innovative side where things get irrational in particular pockets. But like we had the crash, and then rationality sets in. I think InsureTech is going through that too, and maybe that's what this is forcing. It's not to say there won't be the wrong valuations here and there, but right now or maybe pre-COVID-19, like there was definitely hubris in the investment side as much as in the behavioral side for some of those companies. So I think it will settle out and that's not such a bad thing. Hmm. Well, depending if you're, you know, one of the people who loses out in that period, like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry yeah. about that. Rob, um, Rob, before we moved into to news, your, your thoughts are a final question for Brian. Yeah, so um, I totally agree. Great, great conversation. And, and I have, um, just as an aside, you know, had this conversation with, with regulators and others, you know, the role of venture capital and insurance to me is unprecedented, certainly in modern times, right? And we're so used to carriers like 
you know, State Farm USA, whatever, being around for you know a hundred years or more. Um, so we see somebody like Lemonade, right, coming in, you know, totally different profile, growing quickly. What happens after the IPO is kind of the question that I ask, right? Like, are they earning money on their own? To your point, like, you know, what's their loss ratio look like if they're fully backstopped by reinsurance? I mean, it's just a fundamentally different model. And so yeah. to me, the jury's still out. Like, we, 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 we don't know. And I think we're treating them like they're built to last, right, for decades. And, and I don't know that they are. It's just a fundamentally different model than a lot of the, um, you know, the traditional carriers. Uh, but Brian, the, the last question I had for you is, you know, and you touched on this earlier. So for my book, and as you mentioned, right, the end of insurance, you know, the, 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 the other half of the title is as we know it, right? So I was right. never, ever saying insurance is going away in any way, right? Just yeah. what, how we know it is different. And I think you absolutely pick up on that theme. And one thing I'm really excited about is the number one criticism that I get uh, on my book, and I think it's a, a valid criticism, is Rob, you went on quite a bit about what's wrong with insurance, but you didn't spend very much time about you know, how to fix it. And I certainly um, point to some of these emerging technologies and, and I kind of hint at, right, what's the art of the possible. Yeah. But I think you're really almost picking up where my book left off, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. And I know we have the same publisher insurance nerd, so we're going to have to shout out to the folks at insurance yeah. nerds. But yeah, and you know, you kind of mentioned COVID-19, you mentioned valuation, obviously the, the you know, my book came out pre-pandemic and everything, but maybe just kind of, you know, where do you see this going over the next decade? And, and do you think the pandemic is just accelerating trends that were already going to happen? Or do you think there is a fundamental kind of fork in the road that we're now going to go on? Just kind of you know, yeah. ask you to get your crystal ball out. Yeah. And I will say, I don't agree with that feedback on your book. There's tons of other stuff that's just terrible, but no, I, I liked your book, but actually I don't think you can say this is what's going to happen or not. I think you're very right in pointing out these are the building blocks. These are the places where like, you call out the things that are brewing right now that will lead down the road. And you don't talk about everything. You talk about the ones that I think have legs, different time periods. So I disagree with that feedback, having read your book. For me, I think you know, there's a couple of questions in that. I think there are some really interesting things going on right now. So this, uh, this coming week, as we're recording this, I'm chairing the, uh, it's a long title, Insurance AI and Innovative Tech Summit uh, from Insurance Nexus. They put out a an infographic from the survey they do of 300 insurance professionals. Really interesting that um, AI and predictive analytics are on the investment plan for the present day or the, within the next two years. Historically, AI has fit into the two to five bucket. That's for 68% of respondents. That shocked, like the percentage and the time frame shocked me. ML is 50% are right now. That also shocked me. That's very different to the past. And that's where I think we start to see things. Um, for the summit, I was, I was talking to Jane Passell, who's this uh, the new CIO at CNA. And she's sort of saying the same thing is we've now seen the business cases for these things or, or gen one of the business cases. She's very interested in the near term, like the two year mark. Where do we really take that stuff? I think as you look beyond that, then it's questions like blockchain, which has been talked about as a buzzword forever and never fully materialized. But lately, there has been more activity like USA and State Farm, you know, famously have this pilot they're doing on Subro for just settling the accounts. I mean, it seems like such a simple thing, like, oh, you're not revolutionizing anything. If you track how many transactions there are that could cancel out, and you just did one settlement per day, it's actually like across the industry, it's hundreds of millions of dollars wasted. Yeah. So these are maybe not sexy industry um, shifting kind of ideas to outsiders, but internally, these are the real things that get in the way of us delivering what the customer wishes they had. 
and the simplicity of it. And of course, you take step one that leads to step two. So I think that's something to watch is I do think it's probably two years out from when blockchain starts to be a daily thing for in some way for lots of carriers. But I think two years is not irrational, whereas it may have been talked about five years ago as being on the two-year horizon. But frankly, that's nonsense. One of the things we talked about COVID-19 that I think is pulling forward, but for a different reason, many carriers have been looking at the autonomous vehicle movement and shared autonomous vehicles. And, you know, CSAA is in my book. This is one of the reasons why they've been experimenting with mobility solutions is because eventually they're not sure that personal car ownership will be at least enough of a scale thing that, I mean, that's, they're an auto carrier. Like this is the core of their business. And so are lots of others. Um, you know, what's State Farm's auto book? Like $40 billion or so, like it's huge amounts of money. So if that goes away, then we, then it's really a product liability and E&O coverage. It's not personal auto. So they've been thinking about that. Now, I know like Forrester and Gartner and those kinds of places talk about these things coming relatively short. I don't think these are short-term things. COVID's changing that though. And the reason is all of a sudden, people who were multi-car families working from home, like my wife and I both have a car. Neither of them goes anywhere most of the time. A lot of people are not returning to their office. Facebook, nationwide, company after company is looking at remote working on a go-forward basis, not just optional or short-term. It's not going to be everyone, but it's going to be enough that I do think families that have been spending on two cars may say, actually, you know what? How often are we going in two different directions? I'm like, yeah, some people won't want to be in an Uber or Lyft because of cleanliness and safety and all that. So maybe there'll be some offset, but the average American household has 0.83 cars. So that's, sorry, not household, per person. There's 0.83 cars per person in the US. What if that drops to 0.8? That's not that much of a drop. What if it drops to 0.75 or 0.7? You're talking about wiping up billions of dollars a year in auto premium, and that could be in the short term. Lots of people lease on three-year bases. So you could have a severe reduction, even though it may not sound like a lot. Oh, 0.75 versus 0.83 doesn't sound like a lot. In terms of insured cars on the road, that's billions of dollars of reduced premium. So I think something that was talked about from an AV standpoint, autonomous shared vehicles, that, that'll still happen down the road. But in the present, you're going to end up with at least some degree of the same outcome because of COVID rather than because of the AV move. So I think wow. there's some things that are being accelerated. And lastly, it's just digitization because every carrier had to do it like that. Yeah, well, if you talk to Peter Diamandis, he'll tell you that uh, by 2025, car ownership is going to be dead. Uh, so it's <laughs> yes, yeah, I don't. That's where, like, I, I think, I think that's that's not real. Yeah, um, yeah, I and think, it's not just because I'm a car guy. I just don't think that's real. Yeah, well, Texans will give up their cars over their dead, cold bodies. Um, yeah. So it's it's a. Uh, I think some people live in large, dense urban areas, and they forget that there's a sig- substantial portion, billions of people on the planet who don't. And, um, yeah. and so it's going to certainly impact things, but I understand what you're saying. Um, Rob, you got any news for us, uh, this week? You know, I, um, I love what you were saying, Brian, kind of, uh, uh, about, uh, autos and I completely agree. And, and I've even talking to some auto insurers, right. About, um, Hey, what, what if you're wrong? Like they all have projections, right. on when this is coming, when I've always said, kind of, what are, 
what if, what if you're wrong? What if, what if that trend accelerates? So you make a, a great point. You know, really, I, I find it very interesting, uh, you know, what's going on with in-person meetings. So uh, Dig In was uh, supposed to be, uh, I believe, this coming week um, in yep. Austin. And it's gotten moved to early December now. A lot of other conferences, some I was uh, supposed to speak at, got moved to 2021 and others. So yeah, I just kind of curious. I participated in some virtual events as well. So yeah, just kind of curious, Brian or, or James, your thoughts on uh, you know the future of the in-person conference? Well, for for now, the in-person conference is delayed, deferred, and denied. Uh, you know, those of us who enjoy going to conferences are twiddling our thumbs and uh, getting way more productive in other areas of our lives. I think uh, the future of in-person work. I think it's hubris to 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 think that people are going to be like, well, now that we've proven it for two months, I'm never going to go into an office again and I'm never going to blah, blah, blah. You know? I mean, there, there's some just absurd things being said right now. I mean, just re- really absurd things because they're, they're like denying human nature. I think anytime you try and pretend like human nature is fundamentally changed, you're being, uh, you're, you're really being short-sighted <laughs> because I mean, let's be honest. When you're in person, you, you get more done in business. When I do a Zoom meeting with my clients versus when I do a face-to-face with them and take them to dinner, I have a substantially better, because I've tried both pre, pre-virus. I've tried both, and face-to-face gets a lot more results in understanding what's going on, reading their body language. There, there really is no replacement for FaceTime, and, I, and that is from a guy who spent his whole life digitizing uh, the construction and insurance industry, and, and really, honestly, uh, uh, thirty, uh, twenty-nine of my of my forty years building software, there is no replacement for being face to face. So I think this will be on pause. I think it will come roaring back. Personally, I think people will be so desperate for face to face interaction that as soon as these conferences open back up, and you're already seeing that there's a bunch of, uh, of vaccinations being tested. There's a bunch of uh, the uh, test for to, to see if you have already had this, um, the bunch of treatments that are being successful and rem- from Vezadir and all this other stuff. As soon as we have reasonable certainty that we're not going to kill uh, a couple hundred million people, we're going to be, I mean, we're going to, well, I mean, ever, it's going to be a massive conference heyday. So I think it'll come back. The interesting part for me, Rob, is the article that came out this week. And it really wasn't a single article, it was a bunch of them talking about, and I saw a bunch of this morning talking about the number of Silicon Valley companies that have said they're they're going work from home with no end in sight, and they're realizing they can dramatically reduce their capital budgets if they stop building large headquarters, and they're getting roughly the same productivity numbers out of their people for the last two months. And a survey this morning, that and this is more, I think conferences, Rob, will still be around. The office work in really expensive metros, I think, is the one that's really at risk because the the survey today said four out of five technologists in Silicon Valley said that if they were allowed to work from home, they would leave San Francisco. Hmm. They would leave the area. Of course, it's that. it's extremely expensive. There's They have huge socioeconomic issues in San Francisco. Yep. Yeah. They refuse to deal with many of them. If you've been there lately, it's wild. Uh, I think... If companies legitimately follow through on what they're saying and they legitimately let people work from home, you're going to see a mass exodus of tech personnel from geographies that are extremely expensive to live in uh, and that are not really where they want to live long term. And I think it's going to be a very, very, very – it's interesting. The city of Austin, for example – 
Real estate's down like 19% in the last two months. But Hayes County, which is the, the hill country with, you know, with all the great tubing and all the rivers, they're up. Mm. And what does that tell you? People are like, screw this. If I can work from home, I'm not going to live in the city and deal with all that garbage. I'm going to actually be out here in the burbs uh, out, on a, out on the Blanco River. So I think yeah, that's the time. And- yeah, no commute time. What commute yep. time? Yeah. Right? Like, I, I think that's the, the because, I don't know, Brian, what, what are your thoughts on the conferences? You think, you think it's going to be V-shaped or you think it's going to be U-shaped for the rebound on conferences? So I think it's going to be U-shaped kind of like University of Miami, like a pretty wide lock. And so I've, I've gotten uh, to know quite a few conference, yeah, like that, uh, conference producers. And they're expecting there'll be some activity in the late summer and then there will be a second wave and things will be shut down again in the fall. I have no idea, but I know that's what the industry is for the people who, you know, make their money running the events, not the actual, like the companies that are putting them on, but the the producers behind the scenes, that's what they're concerned about. So I do think it'll be a while because that's congregating large groups of people in close quarters for for questionable re- like is that mission critical that they all got together then no and there are virtual ways to do it and actually some of the virtual events are having much bigger impact so like the ai summit that i'm i'm chairing it's a pretty expensive summit in person um i think it's i don't know what the full price ticket is but it's their stuff's usually like 1750 to 2500 bucks it's free as a virtual summit but they might get a thousand people, maybe twelve fifty in person. They're already, as of this morning, they're already over three thousand. So a lot more people engaging. It's different engagement, no question. But they're they're getting more people into their universe. So it's an interesting trade off. Yeah, they're just not going to make nearly as much money, man. It, no, it's it's totally different. The sponsors, you know, can you really charge the same? So there's there's no question to any of that. What I I just put out a piece though. I think there's there is some human behavior that will be shifting on the business travel side, and so my is is a little different from the conferences specifically. But the difference with in person versus digital pre COVID and now is I fully agree with you. In person's better. Like having done sales, you know, like that face to face. I would fly across the country for a one hour meeting. Everyone I've talked to is like, yeah, but now you did that because there really wasn't a video based alternative. That might be the pre meeting. Like Rob, you know, we all had the the meeting where like I demoed it for you guys, but if you're yep. not in person, you're probably not going to move ahead with that carrier. That's right. Now yep. everyone had to do everything this way. And so people who are hesitant or uncomfortable with it, they didn't have a choice and they've learned a few things in that process. Yeah, it's still different. It's not as good, but we could have the meeting right away. We don't have to coordinate calendars over six to 12 weeks to try to find when people are around and you can get your flights and all that. Like now I got to block three days, including the travel. So they're there are suddenly reasons why people are more comfortable with the digital than they used to be. Still not the same as in person. And there's lots of benefits that come with it. And everyone has the tools now. Because don't forget, before, lots of carriers blocked things like Zoom and others. Like, they all have to have something. And most of the vendors now, like, if they only met with Zoom before, now they have like six options because they're trying to meet with everybody. So I think there's going to be a shift in business travel that you wouldn't have considered not making that trip. Now you're like, or we could just do a video conference. Yeah. Like, do yeah. I really need to take a hold today? Yeah, let's just hop on a Zoom and you're good with that, right? Absolutely. And I would say actually an understated thing is that Microsoft Teams, right? So exactly to your point, Brian, that, you know, we all use Zoom, we're on Zoom talking now, but, you know, obviously security issues, we've heard about that. But yeah. now with Microsoft being that trusted kind of enterprise sales, yeah. right? They've already got it with Office and they've got Active Directory and all that. I think that is a, a game changer. I'm seeing more conferences on Teams and obviously Teams is, documents. Teams is fantastic. I've uh, never used it uh, before any of this. Uh, like, uh, 
Uh, Listen, uh, none of them's perfect, but I was uh, versus my expectations. Okay. I expected to be crap. Let me say it like that. So, <laughs> so really, like I've had really good experiences with teams as a as a solution. Well, God bless because I have also gotten better. So teams. So so here's the thing. We've been on we've been on Office 365 for three years, maybe more than that. Where we we were on Google Apps for Enterprise. We left that. Thank the Lord. I mean SharePoint. Yeah. SharePoint and Office Word, PowerPoint are so much better than Google. I mean, and I, and I, and I, and I love Google, but I mean, I'm sorry. Microsoft is killing it on Office 365. Yeah. It's awesome. SharePoint's great. Uh, Teams, the ability to have basically a team be a SharePoint site and then fully integrate that and you can integrate it with your workflow. And there's, I mean, it's amazing for chat. It's great for file sharing. De- decent OneDrive kind of sucks compared to, to Dropbox. I mean, it cannot, Dropbox it can, is awesome. yeah. Dropbox is the best. OneDrive cannot handle large files, cannot handle them. It sucks. It's slow. It screws up sync all the time for me between yes. my Mac and my PCs. Yep. I mean, Microsoft just needs to acquire Dropbox and get this over with because OneDrive sucks. Oh, I hope they don't um, do that because they're going to ruin it. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and, then, and then Teams on a meeting. I can't see more than four people, and I can't designate my views. I mean, and, oh, and I, I get... So I've never had more than four people. Oh, dude. So that's where I'm- I did a 200-person Zoom meeting with my staff. 200 people in one Zoom meeting. All the video cameras were on, and and I and it just created like these giant 32-up pages, all their faces, and it yeah. worked over. It was, I mean, Zoom just kills it. And and look, the security concerns. Let's talk about the security concerns for a second. Really, this was people who didn't put meeting passwords on their meetings that got Zoom bombed. Right. This was this was a bunch of stupid behavior. Now, now there was some other stuff like they they shouldn't have said they're point to point encrypted when they allow people to dial in and they have recorded and I don't know why the hell they use Chinese servers. I mean, they, we got to we got to well, what the deal There's with that? There's a really cool article in all this. Yeah, that just came out like yesterday. It's really interesting. Yeah, but like like look, go, it was it wasn't that much worse than go to meeting. I mean, I'll be let's yeah, be yeah. honest. And right. Webex still sucks. I was on a Webex the other day. And Webex is still terrible. They're still the worst. Webex is terrible. Go to meeting, I think, is terrible. Also. Go go to meeting is yeah. like better than Webex, but not better that. than Webex. And, but yeah. and and Teams works, but. Dear God, why is it so difficult to just give me a 16 up so I can see everybody's yeah. videos? And then why can't I control my viewpoints? And then their VoIP, whatever VoIP protocol they're using is just not as good as Zoom's because we'll have, hmm. we'll have packet loss issues on teams and not packet loss issues. I'm getting super geeky here, but it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I really hope people get with the program and allow for video conferencing. I would love it if I didn't have to travel every week. I would yeah. love it if people would, I mean, there's some people who have real big hang-ups about being on a video camera. I mean, you know who I'm talking about? Like, they claim all the time that their webcams aren't working and they don't turn them yeah, on yeah. because they're, like, so self-conscious that they can't get over it. But you'll have a face-to-face meeting where I can see you, but you won't get on a webcam? Like, what's the difference? Yeah. People have a weird, head out, weird hang-up on it. Some people have anxiety around being on the phone, so they only text. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm married to one of them, you know? Yep. My wife literally gets physically anxious when she has to be on the phone, so she texts everybody. Oh. And I mean, I told her, honey, my bandwidth speaking is about 500 times faster than my bandwidth texting, so I'd rather talk. I mean, other other news, I mean, th- th- there's there's some really interesting ones. The VCs definitively pulled back from FinTech and Q1. This was in TechCrunch and came out in a couple of InsureTech sites that we all follow, like Digital Scouting covered this one. But there was definitely a pullback in fintech, which you have to look at like fintech and insure tech kind of under the same umbrella. 
there was a big uh, pullback. What I'm seeing and hearing that's from startups that's probably a little more uh, troubling for them is that term sheets are getting, they're ripping them up and they're offering the same money at a lower valuation and so they can get more stock. And we're seeing a lot of that behavior where uh, $2 million used to cost you 20% of your company and now it cost you 30 or 40. Brian, are you seeing this? Um, I'm, I don't have a vantage point to that right now, but the, the few companies I have seen, interestingly, were okay with their funding, but they had started the work yeah. ahead of time and were really aggressive on it. So I'm not seeing enough breath. Yeah. But I'm like, yeah, I'm super I'm, interested in what you're saying. I want to check out the article. Yeah. And TechCrunch isn't reporting on a lot of the term sheets. This is companies that are contacting me and telling me what's going on with their rounds if they already were mostly done with their rounds and the due diligence, they're they're fine. They're yeah. they're going through and they're completing them and they're moving forward. And uh, yeah. certainly, some companies that I I know the CEOs really well. A couple of them just closed their rounds, but they were like ninety five percent of the way into it before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so so they they finished out the due diligence and then closed the round. But uh, the ones who aren't in that boat, we're not hearing that they're not getting funding. We're just hearing yeah. they're having to give up more of their company to get it. Well, so coverages get a lot of funding always. But I'm actually surprised at the number that are like a million, they're raised a million dollars. I'm like, that's not around that. How much, I mean, I know you're a small team, but like how much, how much bandwidth did you really just get? But I don't know any of the facts behind it. So it's hard to say, but I'm surprised by the number that are low, low dollar sign or like 1.5 million pounds. It's like, okay, well that's more dollars, but it's still, it's not a lot of runway. A lot of, yeah, I think what I've heard too is that there's, um, it hasn't affected the seed or series A as much as the later rounds that those are the ones that are really getting hit harder. The other thing I, I'm interested though, uh, James and Brian, is whether it comes back quickly. You know, at the end of the day, like white interest rates are at zero percent or near zero percent. That money's still out there. I know from a carrier perspective, they still got capital that they want to earn investment return on. So I could see it coming back relatively quickly, certainly quicker than other uh, sectors of the economy. I don't know what your thoughts are. Mm. Potentially, right? That's a that's a tough one. Brian, any thoughts on that? I think it'll come back. I don't know when. It's another U-shaped thing. Mm. Um, and I think it may not equal out. Like maybe this is part of that correction to a different normal. Yeah, Actually, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I hate to say it, but I, I, ho- I hope it doesn't because I, I don't know that it's serving anyone. It's burning cash and it's there's a lot of irrational competition amongst some of them. I had to deal with a, a competitor who was actually like, they were pretty established, but overfunded. And they basically just treated that as a war chest to compete on BS. So they just invested oh. heavily in a sales story that, and Ab- kind of un, abnormally uh, low price, price points. <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually the pricing was okay. Like the pricing wasn't too wild, but it was more like they started showing up places that they never would have gone to before. And their, their marketing practices aren't the most ethical. So, you know, like a badge turner, they come up to your table and turn the badge around or they'll sit there pretending to text. I'm like, well, you're going to break your wrist if you keep texting with that angle. You're clearly taking photos or video right now. And so like, I would just go at ITC. I just went up to their guy. I was like, hey, I'm Brian from Hi Marley. And he's like, oh, you know, and, and we just started talking because like, I know where you're from. I know what you're doing. We don't need to play those games, but it's because of the money. Because yeah. they could take a team of people to ITC that weren't actually on the boot that were just going around for surveillance. Look, it's an open floor. You can do what you want, but that's not ethics. Um, and that's when you have too much cash. You can start to do stupid things like that. And, and by the way, they didn't win any deals over us. So it's not like it was actually paying back. That's just wasting money. Yeah, but yeah, we, we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot of price subsidy 
buy excess capital, just trying to buy market share. And the problem sure. is you condition your customer base to a lower price point. And you can't walk it back up. Yeah. You know, and I've, you know, I've competed against companies like that. Um, I've, 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 I've been dealing this a long time, right? This has all happened before. It's all happened again. It is really hard to walk a price up. It's real easy to walk in it down. any industry, in any industry, the in auto any- industry, the, yeah. the whole rebates that like you're constantly trying to get rid of rebates and then they add another four grand to the car. It's like you're just, and then the, then the brand's trash. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough. Well, guys, yeah. great conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining uh, Robin no, and myself today. I really yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, Brian. So uh, we would be remiss if we uh, did not ask you where when when does the book launch? Where can you get it? Give us yeah. all those details, man. So the book launches June twenty fourth, but it's done. Book's all finished and signed off. Um, but June twenty fourth, it's going to be on uh, Amazon Kindle print. I'm also doing the audiobook, finishing recording that right now, and it'll also be on Apple Books. Um, it's launching as part of Connected Claims Virtual, since it's not in person anymore. Um, but you can get it, you know, as soon as and you can pre-order it. The easiest way to do that is just head to futureofinsurance.com. It's not for sale there yet. Uh, sorry, future-of-insurance.com. Awesome. And uh, you can sign up for updates and I'll keep you posted. Sounds great. Well, thank you. And uh Rob, thanks as always for joining. Appreciate it. Wish you were here in Michigan. We could uh, we could go hang out and have a Bell's beer six feet apart. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> hey man, enjoy your sixty-one degrees or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will. I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy it and keep the sweater on for sure. And uh, want to thank everybody else out there for joining us this week. Uh, the Insure Tech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham, uh, with my co-host, Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenlee, podcast producer, to Kara Daltonaro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. Look forward to speaking with all of you soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.